Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So good evening and welcome to the resumed Rashi Shear after a break of, uh, well, three weeks off, so it's a break of four weeks during Yantuf. It's nice to be back. Um, and if you're listening live or if you're listening on the podcast at a subsequent time, uh, it, uh, it's come to my attention that the number of people listening to the podcast has recently shut up. So welcome any new listeners. You're welcome to drop me a line um, at james just to introduce yourself and tell me what you think of the podcast and how it perhaps could be improved. And we are up to Peruk Yud Tet Pasuk Yud Zayin. So we rejoin right in the middle of the exciting story of the destruction of Sodom and the rescue of Lot and his family. And we actually left in the middle of Pasuk Yud Zayim. So Yud Zayim talks about how the Malachim are taking Lot and his family out. And it was as they were taking them out. And one of the Malachim said, save yourself. Do not look behind you, and do not stand in the whole plain. To the mountain, um, well, Rashi will tell us what that means, but it looks like something like, save yourself, lest you be destroyed. And um, I do want just to glance again at the Rashi on Altavit Acharecha, do not look behind you. Uh, we did this last time, but I, there's a reason I want to mention it now. Um, Rashi says that at the, the message of the Malachim to Lot is don't look behind you because imahem. you were evil with them, in other words, with all the other people in Sodom. And in the merit of Abraham, you were saved, which implies that it was not through your merit at all, but it was entirely through the merit of Abraham. I think I might have mentioned before, and I probably will mention again, there is a, a question that we can ask of whether Lot deserved to be saved. Was Lot better than the people of Sodom? And Rashi seems to come down to the principle that no, Lot did not deserve to be saved. He was only saved in the merit of Abraham, even though he did some good things. And Rashi later on says he um, did not reveal to Paro when they went down to Egypt that Sarai was Abraham's sister, sorry, wife, not sister. And that um, saved Abraham's life. Um, and that's a good thing. But nevertheless, that doesn't really count at the end of the day. Keeping quiet and not letting your brother-in-law and protector be killed is perhaps not such a great merit. And Rashi here says, Ata hishata imahem Abraham you were only saved in the merit of Abraham. You don't have independence. Okay, but what the next thing of Rashi that we haven't yet done is on the words hahara himalit. So to the mountain, um, save yourself. And Rashi says on the words hahara himalit, etzel Abraham barach, flee to Abraham, shahu yoshev bahar because he is living in the mountain. So it says Rashi, hahara, the hay on the end, as Rashi says in many places, but not here incidentally, is instead of lamad at the beginning, so it's equivalent of to the mountain. 
And when it says to the mountain, it doesn't mean go into the mountains because there you'll be safe from whatever happens to Saddam because you'll be on higher ground. But it's something quite different. It means go to Avraham. And Abraham was living in the mountain. How do we know Abraham was living in the mountain? Because Rashi goes on to prove it. And that comes from Abraham's original arrival in Eretz Israel. As soon as he arrives, he pitches his tent from there to the mountain. Now, that was before Abraham left Israel to go to Egypt. But nevertheless, Rashi says that and he was still there now, because it says, When he came back from Egypt, he went to the place where his tent was originally. So if originally, when he arrived in Eretz Israel, he was in the mountain, then when he came back from Mitzrayim, and he went to the same place as he was before, then he was still in the mountain. Now, there's another pasuk which seems to contradict that, so Rashi says, even though it writes in Peregiv Gimel, and Rashi doesn't finish the passage, but it means, Ad Chevron, sorry, he lived in Chevron. Says Rashi, When the Pasuk said that he was living in Chevron, that didn't mean he was living in Chevron. It meant he had many tents and they stretched all the way up to Chevron but he was still living in the mountain. Hello, Avital, thank you for joining us. Bringing up the Sydney contingent there. Uh, we are on Perakutet Pasuk Yudzayin. Um, and so we've seen that, that, that Abraham originally was in the mountain. He returned after coming back from Mitzrayim to the mountain where he had been before. And even though it says he was living in Hebron, it doesn't mean that. It means his tents went up to Hebron, but he was still living in the mountain. So when the Malachim said to Lot, go to the mountain, they meant go to Abraham. What is Rashi Darshaning? Why does Rashi say all this? And the answer, I think, is very simple. It's one of those answer questions that you can answer simply because Rashi has a shita. Rashi has a principle. When something is identified by the definite object, it means something of significance and something that has been previously mentioned. And here it's the Malachim tell uh, Lot to flee Hahara to the mountain, not to any old mountain. And thereby we can say they're not telling him to go to higher ground which would be any mountain. They're telling him to go to a particular mountain, but more to the point, following Rashi's general rule, if it's the mountain, it must be a mountain that is mentioned before, otherwise it wouldn't be the mountain. The mountain means the mountain that's mentioned before, and which is it that's been mentioned before? The location of Abraham. He originally went, take Misham Hahara, to the mountain. So it's the mountain, which must be one of significance, I, it's the one where Abraham was. And also this fits in with the way that Rashi is going to explain Lot's particular request, which is coming up in just a uh, couple of psukim. And in order to make Rashi's comment on Yudtet make sense, it must be that here in Yud Zion, the Malachim are telling Lot to go to where Abraham is. And as we will see, Lot has other ideas. Okay, the next part of Rashi, is to tell us what is meant by the word himalait. Now, we have traditionally been translating it, and I did this deliberately, as escape. 
or save yourself. Uh, sorry, save yourself is better. The trouble is save yourself doesn't really fit with the words hahara, save yourself to the mountain. It doesn't work in English and it doesn't work in Hebrew. So therefore Rashi tells us that Himalayat doesn't mean save yourself. It means the following. Himalayat says Rashi, Loshan Hashmata, an expression of moving away or slipping away or disconnecting. Um, uh, the word Shemitah is a called Shemitah because it's the time we cancel debts, we move away from debts. So here it means move away. And so all occurrences of this root, Hamlata, or the root is Memlamatet, that occur in scripture. Ishmushir um, Balaz, I don't know if I presented, uh, translated that, sorry, uh, uh, pronounced that correctly, but it's a French word um, which means to move away. And Rashi is going to give us three examples, and to be quite honest, I'm not quite sure why they're all three, and in particular one of them I, I have a question which I haven't found an answer to, but Rashi gives three examples of how this root, Memlavatet, uh, must mean slip away, move away, and doesn't mean save yourself. So the first example is um, the uba, the fetus, nishmat, slips out from the womb. And the reason Rashi brings that example is because there the word nishmat um, cannot mean escapes or saves itself. It must mean slips away, slips out. The second example, which one I have the problem with, Katsipur Nimlata from Tehillim Kufkav Dalat. Katsipur Nimlata, like a bird that has, and the usual translation is a bird that has escaped. And that would be a good translation. So I'm not sure why he brings this example. I'm not sure why he has to bring three, why one isn't enough or two isn't enough. And it seems to me that he's trying to show examples of where the root must mean move away, slip away. It cannot mean escape. But I'm not quite sure how this pasuk Katsipura Nimlata satisfies that because there it could mean like a bird that has escaped or a bird that has moved away, but it could mean a bird that has escaped. And finally, Lo Yachlu Malit Masa. Now, this is a pasuk um, which is talking about idols and it's actually making fun of idols. And this phrase, Lo Yachlu Malit Masa, means they cannot remove their burden. That's how it's translated uh, in regular translations. But Rashi here and Rashi there on the Pasuk in uh, Yeshayahu Memvav um, has a more precise translation. He says it means, with referring to these idols, and he's making fun of idols, and idols can't do things. They can't even perform bodily functions. Uh, it, what it means is they can't lahashmit masa They can't remove the excrement that is inside them. Um, they can't perform a normal bodily function, um, which is not the simple meaning of lo yachlu masa, but that's what Rashi says there, and what Rashi says here it refers to. But either way, actually, it refers to letting go, separating, letting out some sort of burden from within one to outside one. So three examples of how hamlata, the root memlamatet, must mean moving away rather than escaping or saving oneself. So having said, hahara, himalait, move, uh, uh, mal well, I won't translate it, but to the mountain, it can't mean save yourself to the mountain. It must mean move away to the mountain. That concludes Pasuk Yud Zion.
פסוק י"ח. ויאמר לוט עליהם, אל נא אדוני. לוט said to them, so אל נא, please not, or something like that, אדוני. Now אדוני means my masters, or it means something else. And let's just pop into Pastor Yotet very quickly. What does he say? It's uh, after this opening remark in Yotet. He says, uh, If I found favor in your eyes and you've done a lot of kindness with me, to keep my soul alive. Now, let's go back to Rashi on Yotet. Rashi says on the words, Alna Adonai, Rabbeinu Amru, our rabbi said, and this is in the Gemara Shavuot Lamed Bet, Sheshem Ze Kodesh. But this name Adonai is the name of Hashem. Um, we've had this before at the beginning of Perut Yudchet. There's a word which can either refer to the master, as in one of the visitors to Abraham's house, or can refer to Hashem. And there is an important halachic uh, consequence to this question. Because when a sofa writes a Sefer Torah, what kavana, what intention should he have when he comes to this word? And Rashi is telling you that Chazal tell you, as a halacha, this word Adonai, one must write with the intention that this is Shem Hashem. This is the name of Hashem. Which means Lot is talking to Hashem. Well, except it's a little bit more complicated than that, because it says, Lot Alehem, Lot said to them, Alna, please, Adonai which Rashi is now telling us means Hashem. So what's he saying to the angels and what's he saying to Hashem? But let's keep going on. How does, how do Chazal, whom Rashi is quoting, know that this must be a reference to Hashem and not just to the angels that Lot is speaking politely to them and calling them my masters? How do we know that he's actually talking to Hashem at this point? So continues Rashi, nafshi. Because Lot says in it to say you have to kept alive my soul. So he's talking to the, the entity who has kept alive Lot's soul. The one who has the power to cause death and to cause life. Obviously, that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So from the fact that in Pasuk Yotet, Lot refers to his interlocutor as somebody who has saved his soul, Rashi learns from that, or Chazal learns from that, and Rashi quotes them, that Lot is talking to Hashem himself. So then Rashi has to explain what Alna um, mean, or, or, or really what he's, what he's saying to the Malachim, and then what he's saying to Hashem. So Rashi says on Alna, I'm sorry, I missed a, a word in the previous part of Rashi. Uh, sorry, the previous part of Rashi concluded, but Targumo bevau kan Hashem. The, the Targum Onkelos of the words Al Na Adonai is Bavo, please, can, hear Hashem. Hashem. There are actually different versions uh, in different editions of Onkelos, and some have it as Adonai, not as Hashem, but Rashi's version obviously had Hashem, and Rashi is saying that that supports Rashi's notion that it's not referring to my masters, but referring to Hashem himself, because that's what the Targum says. Okay, so the next Rashi on the words Alna, Rashi explains, Al Tamru Elai Lihimalate Hahara. Don't say to me to, to slip away, to move away to the mountain. Now, in the next part that we're going to discuss, 
why um, Lot doesn't want to go to the mountain, which we now know from the previous passage means going to Abraham. So Lot will explain, Rashi will explain why Lot doesn't want to go to Abraham. But this is Rashi's explanation of the words Alna, Al Tamru Elai Lehimalate Hahara. Don't tell me, don't say to me to move away to the mountain. Whom is Lot talking to at this point? Well, you might think, if you weren't reading it very carefully, that this is the continuation of Rashi's previous point. It's all being said to Hashem. But it's not, because this comment of Al-Tamru Elai is in the plural. Do not say to me, plural people don't say to me. So at this point, says Rashi, he's talking to the Malachim. So Rashi has helped us understand these three words are two parts of a Two uh, are parts of two separate conversations. The Yomer Lot Alehem. Lot said to them. So he must be talking to the Malachim. Now, you could read it as he said in the presence of the Malachim, but he was really talking to Hashem. But that is not the path Rashi takes. Rashi says, Al Tamru Elai, do not say to me. So he's talking to the Malachim. What Rashi's done, incidentally, is he's explained the word Adonai first, and then he goes back to explain the word Alna. And when Rashi explains words out of order, there is a significance to that. And in this case, his main point is that Adonai is Shem Kodesh. It's referring to Hashem. So that, if you like, frames the whole conversation. Lot is talking to Hashem. But having said that, Rashi also has to explain what is he previously saying to the Malachim. And the answer is, he's saying, And the last thing Rashi says is to translate the word na. Now, the word na can sometimes mean now and can sometimes mean please. Rashi says, na loshan bakasha. It's an expression of a request. It means please. Now, why does Rashi say that? Well, the first thing is because there is ambiguity. The word na can have at least two meanings. So Rashi has to clarify which one it is. And how does he know when it means please and not now? Well, the simple answer to that is it doesn't make sense for Lot to be saying, please don't tell, sorry, forget the please. Don't tell me to go to Abram's house now, which implies that at another time, it would be okay for you to tell me to go to Abram's house. But as we will see from the next pasuk, Lot doesn't want to go to Abram's house, not now, not never. So it doesn't make sense for Lot to be saying, please don't tell me now not to go to Abram's house. Therefore, Rashi says, nah, it does not mean now, it means please. It's an expression of bakasha. So let's move on to the next pasuk. So we already trailed this a little bit. Behold, now your servant has found favor in your eyes. And the kindness, your kindness that you have done with me is very great. The hachayot et nafshi, to keep my soul alive. And I am not able to move away to the mountain. Pen tidbakani hara'a Lest the evil stick to me and I die. So you might read that as saying, look, there's this uh, violent overthrow of Saddam and Amara. There's uh, fire and sulfur descending as we're going to read in a little while. 
And if I don't get too uh, far out the way, then it will catch me and I will die. Rashi does not say that. Rashi says that's not the issue. It's a issue about going to Abraham's house. Lot has a problem going to Abraham's house. And why does Rashi reject the much more simple Peshat? Presumably because if the angels have already made this great effort to bring him and his family out of Sodom, and Lot has acknowledged it's lachayot nafshi, to keep my soul alive, then Lot would realize, but the Malachim are not going to dump him in a place which is dangerous and let him die after all their efforts to save him, which are clearly miraculous and are clearly unlimited in their power and their scope. So it doesn't make sense for Lot to be saying, I don't want to stay in the, to go, go to the mountain because it's too close to Saddam and it's dangerous. Rather, that even though you and Malachim have said, I will be safe there, and you know that I will be physically safe there, there is an additional problem. And that is what Rashi explains. Rashi explains what is Lot's problem, which is not of a physical nature, but is of a different nature. And here is what Rashi says on the words, hara, lest the evil uh, stick to me, says Rashi, when I was with the men of Saddam, Hashem would see my deeds and the deeds of the people of the city. And I appeared as a tzaddik, and worthy of saving. But when I come to the tzaddik, i.e. Um, Avraham, ani I am light like a Russia. So when I was in Saddam, I compared favorably to the people in Saddam. But if I go to Abraham's house, I will be a Russia compared to him. And then the evil will stick to me and I will die. Uh, and the next part of Russia, which we'll come to in just a minute, is a precedent for this analysis. Rashi finds a story from Eliyahu where the same suggestion was made that in comparison to Eliyahu, somebody looked bad and was judged harshly. So we'll come to that in a minute, but let's just explore this idea of what Rashi says that Lot is worried about. So Lot says two things. Number one, when I was in Saddam, I looked like a tzaddik, but when I'm with Abraham, I will look like a Russia. And his logic, his next logical step is, if I look like a Russia with Abraham, I will be destroyed like the people of Saddam. So compared to the people of Saddam, I am different. But compared to Abraham, I'm in the same boat as the people of Saddam because I'm a Russia. Even though I'm not a Russia like them, I am a Russia compared to Abraham, and that's enough to kill me. So question, the reason I wanted to go back to Yud Zion and the words of the Malachim to, um, to uh, Lot, when they said, you are only saved in the Zchut of Abraham, which implies he has no merit at all of his own, no merit to be saved on his own account. Let's compare that now to what Lot analyzes, because Lot puts himself in the middle between Abraham and Saddam. Compared to Saddam, he's a tzaddik. Compared to Abraham, he's a Russia. Now, you could say, 
that Lot thinks he's got some merit compared to Sodom to be saved. Um, in which case, if that's what Lot is saying, then you could go in two ways. Either he thinks that he has, but he's wrong, or he's just making it up because uh, we've been told that he doesn't have merit to be saved by himself. Or you can say differently, and I think this is what Rashi is saying that Lot is saying. He's not saying he's got merit to be saved, but the fact is when he was in Saddam, he looked good and that was good for him. But the fact will be when he goes to stay with Abraham, he will look bad and he will look equivalent to the people of Saddam. So I actually think, although you can argue it different ways, I think if you analyze this very carefully, Lot is confirming what Rashi said that the Malachim said that he has no independent merit. The only reason he looks good is in relation to Saddam, but ultimately in relation to Abraham, he looks as bad as the people of Saddam. And that is why if he's compared to Abraham, he will suffer the same fate as the people of Saddam. And that's what he's worried about. Now, what's the next part of Rashi? I said, Rashi is gonna bring a parallel and he says, and so the Tsarfit woman said to Eliyahu, so it's just after the famine or when the famine was coming to an end in the time of Achav, um, which was uh, Eliyahu's main enemy. So Eliyahu is told by Hashem to go to Tsarfit and there he will be fed by this widow who has one son and then the son gets ill. And the woman says to Eliyahu, Bata Elayla has kir et avoni you have come to me to cause my sin to be remembered. In other words, Rashi spells out what she's saying. Until you came to me, the woman says to Eliyahu, Hashem would see my actions and the actions of my people, but I need tzadeket and I was a tzadeket amongst them. And from when you came to me, According, compared to your deeds, I'm a Russia, and that's why I'm being punished, and that's why my son is actually died. Turns out Eliyahu brought him back to life, which was, which was fortunate. Um, but this is a perfect precedent, even though it happened later, but it's a perfectly explicit example in the Tanakh of somebody saying that compared to a tzaddik, I look like a Russia, and I am judged and punished accordingly. So Rashi brings that incident as a parallel to what he's saying Lot is concerned about. So Lot doesn't want to go to the mountain because as Rashi explains, the mountain equals Abraham and Rashi's explained why he doesn't want to go to, the, uh, to be compared to Abraham. So he has an alternative and he says in Pasukkak, Hinei na ha'ir hazot, behold now, here this city, Kurova is near Lanus Shama to flee there, the He Mitzar, and it is small. Imauta na Shama, let me go there. Halo Mitzar He, behold, it is small. Utchi Nafshi, and my soul can live. So, um, we're actually going to talk about this small city and what Lot is saying. First of all, he says it's Karova, Lanushama. It's near to flee there. It's Mitzar. It's small. And then again, he says, Hello, Mitzar. He behold, it is small. Utchi nafshi, and my soul can uh, live. 
So what is this city and why is it Karopa? And Rashi actually quotes exactly what it comes from the Gemara, uh, Gemara Shabbos, Kaf Yud. And there, Rashi, the question that we would ask, why is Rashi saying this, is answered. Chazal actually gives the question and the answer. If the word Karoba means near in the literal sense, then Chazal say Lot would not have to point that out to the Malachim because they could see it as well. Lot is giving them information which they couldn't see with their own eyes. Now, you could argue, argue they obviously know everything because they're Malachim, but it's not as if something they can see. If they could see that it's nearby, Lot wouldn't have to point that out. And therefore, when he says Karova, he means something quite different from geographically close. So what does he mean? So Rashi says what the Gemara says like this. On the words, Ha'ir Hazot Krova, Krova Yeshivata. Its settlement is near, i.e. recent. Nityasheva Mikarov. It was settled recently. Leficha lo nitmala sa'ata adayin. Therefore, literally, its measure is not yet been filled. And we've actually seen this phrase before um, in Rashi, when uh, Abraham is told that uh, his descendants will go to Egypt, but the fourth generation will return back to Eretz Israel, because until then, lo litmala sa'atan, uh, the measure of the seven nations who lived there has not yet been filled, meaning they hadn't sinned enough to deserve to be removed from Israel and replaced by the Jews. Similarly here, Rashi uses the same phrase that this city, this small city that Lot wants to be spared so he can settle there, is been settled recently compared to the other cities and therefore it hasn't been sinning for so long. Um, you will remember that in uh, Perik Yudalad, uh, we have the story of the five kings against the four kings, and there were five cities, Sodom, Amora, and three others, and the last one was called Bela, and that's the city that we're referring to, and it's going to have its name changed soon from Bela to something else, but this is the city that Lot says is Kurova, which means it's been settled recently. Now, when was it settled? How much recently, how, more, how much more recently compared to the other cities where their measure of sinfulness has been filled and they have deserved to be destroyed? It continues Rashi. Umahi karivata. What is its nearness? Midor ha-palaga shenit palgo ha-anashim yashev ish ish bimkomo. So compared to the time when any city was settled, now, when was any city settled? When did humanity spread out and go and settle cities? And the answer is from the time of the Dor HaPalaga, the generation of the dispersal, the generation that built Migdal Babel, all in this week's Pashtunach. So after the flood, they built this tower and Hashem said, not a good idea. And he mixed up their languages and they settled into separate nations with separate languages, and they went around the world, and then they settled. So the earliest time that any city could have been settled was the time of Dur Hapalaga, the generation of the dispersion. And each person, i.e. each nation, began to settle in their place. 
When was that? Well, we know one thing it was. From this week's Sedra, Pashas Noach, Rashi makes the point, that he haita bishnat mot heleg. Heleg was the son of Achpachshat, uh, sorry, the son of Ever, who was the son of Achpachshat, uh, who was the grandson of Shem. Uh, Ever was the great-grandson of Shem, and Ever had two children, Peleg and Yaktan, and he called Peleg Peleg because in the year of Peleg's death, and Rashi proves why it will be the year of his Peleg's death, not of his birth, not in between, uh, that's when the, the, the time of Migdal Baba. It's also Rashi finds the support for that in the Midrash called Seder Olam. So, um, you have to take it partly on trust that Rashi is relying on a Masora, which, which he explains that the, door, the generation of dispersal was at the time of the death of Peleg. When was that in relation to the, the day we're talking about now? So Rashi says, Umisham ba'atkan nun bet shana. And from the death of Peleg until now was 52 years. So we're going to prove, we're going to show the calculations how we get to 52 years. We'll do that in just a minute. But I'll tell you where we're going and why we're going. So we're going to say that the death of Peleg which was the same time as Migdal Baba, which was the same time as any city started to be settled, was 52 years before this time. So the oldest cities are 52 years, and the city which Lot wants to be saved because it's Kurova is less than 52 years old. Now, how do we get to the 52? How do we show that now, this year, this moment, is 52 years after the death of Peleg? And now we need to do a bit of arithmetic. And it says like this, Shepeleg mate bishnat memchet la Avraham. Because we know that Peleg died when Avraham was 58, sorry, 48, or to be precise, in Avraham's 48th year. So he might have been 47, but in Avraham's 48th year. How do we know that Peleg died when Avraham was 48? Because, Ketzad, how so? So here's, here's the maths. Peleg chai acharei holido et ra'u reishtet shana. We know, because the Torah tells us explicitly, that Peleg had a child called ra'u, and then Peleg lived for another 209 years. But let's see what happened to ra'u and his descendants in the course of those 209 years, from the birth of Peleg's son ra'u until later. So, Peleg chai achare holido et ru reshtet shana. Peleg lived for 209 years. Say mehem lamad bet kushanolad sarug. So of those 209 years from the birth of Peleg's son Ra'u, the first 32 takes us to the birth of Ra'u's son Sarug. Umi sarug anshanolad nachor lamad. And Sarug waited 30 years and then he had a son called Nachor. So how far away are we from the birth of Ra'u? Ra'u's 32 years, Saruk's 30 years. Rashi gives us a running count. Aray, Samach Bet. So we've got to 62 years. Peleg is still alive, but it's now 62 years after Ra'u was born, out of the 209 years until Peleg's death. Uminacha ad shenolad terach kaftet. And from Nachor's birth until Nachor had a son called Terach, that's 29 years. We know all this from the genealogy given at the end of Parshat Noach, this week's Parshat. It tells us how old each of these people were when they had their child. So we were at 62. We've now got another 29 years till the birth of Terach. Haray Sadi Aleph.
that takes us to 91. Peleg is still alive because he's going to live for 209 years after he had his son. So we've only got 90 year, 91 years so far. Umisham Anshanolad Avraham Ayin. And from the birth of Terach to the birth of Avraham was 70 years. Terach was a bit of a slow starter compared to his antecedents. He only had Abraham when he was 70 years old. 91 plus 70, Harei Kof Samach Allah. We're up to 161. But so Abraham was born 161 years after Peleg had Ra'u. Peleg lived 209 years. So between 161 and 209, Tain Lahem Mem Chet Reish Tet. So that leaves 49, uh, sorry, 48, and that takes you to a total of 209. When Peleg died 209 years after giving birth to Ra'u, or his wife giving birth to Ra'u, that was the time of Migdal Bavo. We have now shown that Abraham was 48, or in his 48th year at the time of Migdal Bavo. By the way, how old was Abraham when he recognized Hashem? So the traditional answer that we teach little children to that question is three. However, the Midrash, Bereshit Rabbah, doesn't say three. Three comes from a Gemara. But the Midrash says he was 48 when he recognized Hashem. Why 48? Good question. Maybe it's more of a coincidence that he was 48 at the time of Migdal Babel. So maybe when the Midrash says that 48, he recognized Hashem, it was the cataclysmic and catastrophic events of Migdal Babel that made him realize that rather than try and build a tower into heaven, it was his task to understand the nature of heaven and to reach an awareness of God and the one, only one and the good God. And he discovered ethical monotheism as a response to Migdal Babel. In fact, we can go a little bit further. Um, it's not clear what was the sin of the people who built the tower. It's one of those incidents in the Torah, Nadav Anavihu is another one, hitting the rock is another one, where something went horribly wrong, but we don't really know what it is. So um, Rav Menachem Leibtag says, if you look in the words of what the people building the Mikdal Baba wanted to do, was v'na'aseh lanu shem. They wanted to make for themselves a name. They wanted to be famous. They wanted everyone to call on their name. Avraham, what does he do when Hashem tells him to go to Eretz Israel? He wanders around, he builds a Mizbeach, Vayikra, the shame Hashem. The people of the tower wanted to make a name for themselves. Avraham makes a name for Hashem, not for himself. Avraham is the response to Migdal Baba. So it actually is a very nice idea, and Rav Nachman mentions this as well, that maybe you can relate what we've just done here, what Rashi's just done with the arithmetic, to show that Abraham was 48 at the time of Migdal Baba, which explains that's what set him off on his path that ultimately led to him being selected by Hashem to found the Jewish people. Okay, so Abraham was in his 48th year at the time of Migdal Baba, which is the earliest time any city could be settled. How old is he at this time? How old is he at the time of the destruction of Sodom? Um, uh, the Oto Shana Hapalaga. Sorry, that year, um, the year of the death of Peleg, was the year of the generation of the dispersal. Ukashenecherva Saddam, and when Saddam was destroyed, Haya Abraham Bed Tzadi Tet. Abraham was 99 Shana 
years old. How do we know Avram was 99 years old? Because he's just had his Brit Milah three days before the events that all happen within the same day. The day that the Malachim come to Abraham is the same day the Malachim go to Saddam. It's the same day that they destroy Saddam. And Rashi said at the beginning of the Pasha that the Malachim came three days after his Brit, and we were told explicitly at the time of his Brit that he was 99. You could also work backwards from the fact that he's going to have a son when he's 100, and the Malachim announced a year in advance that the son would be born, i.e. Abraham is 99. So if he was in his 48th year at the time of Migdal Bavo, and he's now 99, what does that leave you? So from the time of the dispersal until the time of now, it was 52 years. So um, I labored that probably much more than Rashi did. Um, I, made a, I, I took the calculations very slowly, but really it's quite straightforward. And Rashi has proved that the earlier city could have been settled 52 years before um, the time of uh, the destruction of Saddam. So Saddam was 52 years old, full of 52 years worth of sins. But Soar Ichara Yeshivata, Achare Yeshiva Saddam. So Soar, we're told this city that Lot has identified as having a more recent settling was settled after Saddam and the other cities. How much later? Now here Rashi says the minimum that it can that, that the Pasuk can be telling us. It tells us that it was later than Saddam, but we don't know for sure it was two years later or three years later or four years later. Rashi says it was a minimum and he chooses this number of one year later. Shana Soa was settled one year later. Now, why does he say one year later? So I've already tried to explain that <clears throat> general principle that we, we see throughout the Gemara, that if you don't know how big the number is, you go for the smallest possible, and you say that with certainty. So we can say with certainty that it was at least one year younger than Saddam. But there's another clue that Rashi brings. This is one of the rare occasions where Rashi brings a gematria. He doesn't often bring a gematria, but sometimes he does. And he says, imauta na. This is the why the Pasuk that we're darshaning, what we're explaining says, let me explain, escape, please. Because na, gematria, nun aleph. Na in gematria is 51. And what Rashi is also saying is the word na is superfluous. It's redundant and therefore it must be coming to teach us something else. Because he could have just said, imalta shama, let me move there. But he didn't, he said, imalta na shama. And that na, says Rashi, is there to tell us 51. So I have to say, um, whenever I've learned that Rashi, it always seems a little bit disappointing um, that this city is not much, much younger than Saddam. It's only a little bit younger than Saddam. It's only 2% younger than Saddam. But apparently that's enough to say that it hasn't yet reached its measure of sinfulness. And Lot can argue that it doesn't need to be destroyed. And then Lot adds at the end of his words, Hello, um, Mitzar he. Behold, it is Mitzar. Says Rashi, Hello, Avonoteha Mu'otin. 
Behold, its sins are few. And you are able to leave it. So he's making an argument. He's arguing that the Malachim should spare this city. Incidentally, just a, a, a comment. Abraham davens and davens and davens for the cities to be spared, and he fails. And Lot says, oh, just by the way, can you save one of the cities? Because it doesn't really deserve it. And as we're about to see, the Malachim say, yeah, fair enough, we'll give it a go, we'll save that one. It just seems a little bit incongruous that Lot seems to be more successful than Abraham in his prayers to, uh, of mercy for the city, at least of this one city. So um, Rashi is explaining what is Mitzahar meaning? Why does Lot have to reinforce the idea that it's Mitzahar? He said already that it's Kurova Lanushama, the he Mitzahar. And then he says, Hello Mitzahar he, behold, it is Mitzahar. He's saying it a second time. So what is he adding the second time? So Rashi says he's adding not only is it a young city, but also explicitly spelling out that therefore its sins are few, muatin, few relating to mitzara meaning small, and therefore you're able to leave it. And then Rashi, or we'll go a little bit further, um, that's the end really of that comment. And then Rashi says, what we've just said is, a, is the midrashic explanation, but the straightforward meaning of the text, Hello, Irkatanahi. Behold, it is a small city, but Anashimba Ma'at, and there are few people in it. Ein lach lahakpid im tanichana. You don't need to get bothered. You don't need to be particular if you leave it. Utachinavshiva, and let my soul live in it. So Rashi is bringing a midrashi explanation and a simple explanation. The first thing is, why does he bring the Midrash first? Now, usually Rashi, if he brings a Pshat and a Midrash, brings the Pshat first and the Midrash second. Rashi doesn't do that here. It's not uncommon that Rashi will bring the Midrash before the Pshat, um, but it would seem that there's a particular problem with the Pshat. Um, and the problem, presumably, is what we said at the beginning, that uh, Kurova, um, that to say that the city is near in a literal sense is unlikely. That's not the sort of thing you would say to the Malachim, as the Gemara says. Although there may be other reasons that you can say there's a problem with the Pshat, and that's why the Pshat has to come second. But I, what I really want to say is um, there are two ways of reading Rashi's comment here. When he said, Zevu Midrasho, which bit of what he's previously said is the Midrashic explanation to be, as it were, replaced or to be offered an alternative with the Pshat explanation. And I saw two ways of explaining this comment. Either it just refers to the previous line of Rashi, on the words, Halo mitzaarhi, um, When Rashi says, its sins are small, it's just that one line, Rashi says, that's the Midrash, and the Pshat is, it's small in that there aren't many people living there. Or you can say that the, when Rashi says Zehu Midrasho, he's referring to everything he said before, the whole calculations, the whole 52 years, the whole 51 years, all the reference to it being less full of sin because it has been around for fewer years. That's all the Midrash. And we could sweep the whole thing away with a shot 
It says, hello, Irkatanahi. It's a small city and Anashim Bama'at, and there are a few, a small number of people there. And I honestly, I can't see a way to be Machriya. I can't see a way to resolve this dispute. And as I say, there are those on, on either side. Whether Rashi is um, saying the Midrash, which he's then replacing with the Peshat, is the whole thing about all the calculations, 51, 52 years, or just the last comment about its sins are few. But either way, Rashi suggests an alternative, a pshat that says it's a small city with small people, a small number of people. And by the way, this actually has a, it's a very different message to the Malachim that Lot is saying. According to the first explanation, Lot is saying they don't deserve destruction because they are not so sinful. Which of course begs the question, why would Hashem plan to destroy them if they didn't deserve it? So maybe Lot is trying to second-guess Hashem, or, or, or maybe he's got a point, and that's why the Malachim give in so quickly and say, all right, we'll save it. Or, according to Rashi's Pshat, Lot is not saying they don't deserve it, but Lot is saying there are only a few of them, and therefore, you can let them be. Yes, they deserve it. Yes, they're guilty. They're guilty as all the other people in Saddam, but if you save a few of them, it's not such a problem. You don't have to be so muckpit. You can get away with saving a few of them, even they do, though that even though they deserve it. Now, it's a very different case. In the first explanation, Lot's case is one of justice. They they haven't sinned so much. In Lot's, in the second case, it's one more and more of expediency. It doesn't matter if you let them live. That was all Rashi on Pasuk Kaf. So now, how are we doing for time? Yes, we've got a bit more time to do Pasuk Kaf Aleph. He said to him, Behold, I have literally lifted your face. I have given consideration also for this thing. Not to overturn the city or not my overturning of the city. As you have said. So the Malach, singular, agrees to Lot's request. And he says, I've con given uh, consideration to you, gam ledavar hazeh. And Rashi says on the words, gam ledavar hazeh, lo dayecha sha'ata nitzal, it's not enough for you that you are saved, ela af kolair atzil biglalcha, but even the entire city I will save for your sake. Why does Rashi say this? Why does Rashi say that the Malach is saying, it's not enough that I'm saving you, I have to save the whole city? simply to explain the word gum also the malach clearly says i'm going to do what you said also meaning in addition to what i've already done so rashi explains what is the already done the already done is that you lot have been saved and i will also now do the next thing that you've asked and that's the gum and then rashi's got a little bit of grammar fairly simple bit of grammar on the word hafhi on the yud at the end. So what does hafchi mean? It says Rashi, hafech ani, I am overturning. I'm overturning the city or the overturning of mine, my overturning. So Rashi says, when you have a yud on the end of a verb like this, well, sometimes it is to be ignored. Rashi sometimes will say it's purely sort of stylistic and it doesn't really mean anything. So one explanation of what Rashi is doing at this point is to uh, reject that suggestion, which Rashi himself makes in other cases, 
but the yud doesn't mean anything. No, it means something. It means uh, I am overturning. And he brings three um, proofs or uh, other examples of how you have a yud on the end of a verb, and it means my doing it. Kamo ad bo'i, until I come, or until my coming. Achare ro'i, after I have seen, and midday dabribo, while I speak of him. Um, and again, you can ask, and I haven't really got an answer, why we need all three examples. What does each one add? Uh, and I'm not sure of that, I'm afraid. Um, more homework needed there. But each one of them is a verb with a yud on the end, and it means I am doing something. I am coming, um, uh, which is probably a better example than the next one, achare ro'i because after I have seen could mean possibly after someone has seen me, because ro'er is a transitive verb, so it could take an object, whereas ba, to come, is an intransitive verb, so it can't take an object. So bo'i must, must mean I have come, it can't mean anything else, whereas ro'i could possibly mean seen me. And there is a precedent for a yud at the end of a verb meaning me. Um, in Pashat Kitetse, where a yibum, the woman whose husband has died and is therefore due to be married to her brother-in-law. And if the brother-in-law doesn't want to marry her, so we do chalitza instead of yibum, and she says, lo ava yav, uh, yavmi, lo ava yavmi, that is the varim kafhei pasuk zayim. And there, yavmi means to do yibum on me, where the yud refers to me as the object so Rashi, in addition to be saying that the Yud is to be taken seriously, it's not one of those Yudin that you can ignore. Also, he wants to point out that the Yud here refers to the subject, because at least in that case that I just brought, it could refer to the object. But no, it refers to the subject. Bo'i means I have come. Ra'i means I have seen. Midei Dabri Bo means I speak of him. And... Interestingly, what Rashi doesn't say on Havchi, well, that might come become clearer in the next comment of Rashi. Have we got time? Yes, we can. Uh, yes, we have got time. So the Malach continues, having said, I am going to save the whole city that you've asked for. He says, Maher, Himalay Shama, hurry, move there. Kilo Uchala Asot Davar, because I am not able to do a thing, ad boacha shama, until you have come there, alkein kara shem ha'ir tzo'ar, and therefore the name of the city was called tzo'ar, after, well Rashi will tell us about that, so we'll leave that for uh, when we get to that Rashi, which won't be this week. So the Malach says, ki lo asot davar ad boacha, I'm not able to do anything until you have come there. Says Rashi, ki lo asot, this is the punishment of Malachim, because they said, we are destroyers. When they introduced themselves to Lot, or they revealed their plan to Lot, they said, we are destroyers. And they made the thing depend on themselves as if it was up to them. And what they didn't admit what they didn't uh, put into words was they are just shlichim of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They were only doing Hashem's uh, mission. 
they spoke as if they were doing things for themselves, and it was up to them when they said, Ki they made the thing dependent on themselves. Therefore, Therefore, they couldn't move from there until they were forced to say that the thing is not up to them, not in their power. They had to say, I am not able to do. They had to confess their impotency um, to, show, to correct the sin that they had done or the, the wrong thing that they had done when they said, uh, Now, why does Rashi say that? And why does Rashi say the next thing as well, which we're going to have to pause and wait till next week? Because these words, again, are apparently redundant. The Malach could have just said, hurry up there. Um, and I won't do anything until you come there or something like that. But the very fact they said, I am not able, Rashi sees as something that needs an explanation. And Rashi's explanation is that they were forced to use those words to, cor to correct the error or the sin that they had made before. One can get into the question, and we're not going to, A, because Rashi doesn't, and B, because there's no time, of how a malach, which has no Yetzirah, can do anything wrong. We will put that on one side. Um, but Rashi, Rashi is not averse to the idea of malachim doing things wrong. Uh, at the very end of Parashat Bereshit, there's a fascinating example, but we won't go there now. But Rashi seems to say this malach has stepped out of line a bit and now has to correct himself, and that's why he says lo uchal. The next comment of Rashi, which we'll get to next week, Imir Tzashem, gives another thing that we can learn from this phrase lo uchal. But we will stop there. And I will thank you all for your participation and thank those who are listening on the podcast. Don't forget to rate and review so other people can find it. And we will be back in Yitz Hashem same time next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Rabbi.